Hey, another great episode of Roundup is coming up next. If you like what you heard, please go online to redsearadio.org and donate, become a monthly sustaining member, and keep us on the air. Thank you and God bless. Good morning, Red Sea Catholic Radio listeners. This is your second Wednesday of the month host, Dr. Thaddeus Romanski on Red Sea Roundup. You are listening on KEDC 88.5 FM in the Brazos Valley, KYAR 98.3 FM in Central Texas, and KINF 107.9 FM in Palestine, We're live this morning on both sides of the break. We're going to be talking to Michael Rea, good friend of mine involved in the design of the new church at St. Mary's and College Station. We're going to be talking about elements of that new church design, giving you all some inside baseball information about that stuff. And we're also going to be looking at it in light of the document on the liturgy from the Second Vatican Council, Sacrosanctum Concilium, and some of what it has to say about sacred arts, beauty, and the liturgy. So I'm very excited to call to uh, talk to, to Michael. He's going to be calling in, and you can call in and ask him a question if you want. Uh, 85-LOVE-RED-C, 855-683-7332. That's after the break. But right now, I am happy to inform you that today is the Feast of the Dedication of the Lateran Basilica. What is the significance of that feast day? Why do we have a feast day about the dedication of a basilica? Well, I think that's pretty pretty neat that we're going to be talking about sacred arts, architecture, and liturgy on this feast day. Did I plan that, folks? No, I did not. <laughs> that is providence. That is the Holy Spirit at work. But let me tell you a little bit about this feast day. In the year 313, Constantine declared the Edict of Milan. That's the Roman Emperor Constantine granting religious freedom to Christians. Constantine himself donated the Palace of the Lateran, a portion of his wife's dowry, to the church for its first basilica. The Lateran is the cathedral of the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, and as such, it ranks as the mother and head of all the churches in the city and the world. From its dedication on this date in 324, 324 AD, ladies and gentlemen, until the 15th century, the Lateran was the residence of the popes. The Pope celebrates the Holy Thursday evening liturgy at St. John Lateran, surrounded by towering statues of the 12 apostles bearing the instruments of their martyrdom. So this is a great feast day for the antiquity, for the tradition of our Catholic faith, the beautiful tradition of our Catholic faith. So praise be to God. Um, I'm in the studio this morning with our executive director, Dennis Maka, he's on the buttons this this morning. Good morning, Dennis. How are you? Good. Good morning, Thaddeus. Great to to hear that great information, and and uh, it's it's nice how things sync out like that. Uh, that's a that's a wonderful time to uh, have this topic today on this feast day. I think that's awesome. 
And one of the reasons that we are able to bring you something like Red Sea Roundup each Wednesday, and we're able to get great guests like Michael Rea. Uh, last month, I was able to interview Katie Faust about the global children's rights movement, us, uh, them before us. Mm -hmm. uh, other fantastic guests we've had on in the past is because of supporters and listeners like you who give generously of your hard-earned money. And the biggest time of year that you come together as, as a community to support us and we get to meet you and visit with you and, and hear about the good work that's being done through our apostolate is at our benefit dinners. And as you probably know, if you're listening, uh, those are coming up next week. And mm -hmm. we are so excited to report, and Dennis is going to tell talk more about this. We are full to capacity to bursting at our Waco <laughs> benefit dinner. Let's talk about that first. Dennis? We're not breaking fire code, but we are breaking the uh, the ability to put any more tables in that building. We are completely full to capacity. So if you did not get a space reserved at the benefit dinner in Tours or Waco, just north of Waco, uh, check the people on our website. Check the, uh, the, the groups that are on our website. Uh, list the table sponsors. If you know any uh, people that are sponsoring tables and if they have any empty seats, maybe you uh, might be able to sit at one of their tables. And so give them a call. But uh, we are full to capacity. And not only that, Thaddeus, we are at record capacity. Uh, we've we've not had this many tables at either of our benefit dinners at either location no. uh, ever before. So the, the generosity and the support is just... It's incredible. It's overwhelming. We are, we are, uh, we're, we're, we're talking 25% more, not just yeah. a couple of tables. We're talking 10 tables, 12 tables more than we had last year. At in, a, this time. in a time of economic hardship, in a time of inflation, mm -hmm. uh, where it costs the, the cost of goods and services on average is, is much, much more than in 40 years. Mm -hmm. And people are digging deep to support. Catholic Radio and and Victory Sports and all the other great family apostolate activities that we do, and so it is just uh, I can't thank y'all all y'all enough. Yes, we are very excited about that. The benefit dinner here in uh, Bryan College Station. We are actually, if we kept, we're actually one entire row bigger than we were last year. And if we kept the current table configuration that we're at now, <clears throat> we would be at complete capacity. However, the Brazos Center is a bigger facility, so we can add one more row up to seven more tables. And that could fill up very quickly, but that will be a tight squeeze in the very back. And we were told by the Brazos Center you will not have more than those tables. So we have four <laughs> we have forty-nine tables. And 45 in the Waco area, 49 here, completely reserved. We can do up to 56. But to give you a perspective, the most we've ever had here in the Brazos Valley is around 36 tables. So so this, this is incredible. Now, yeah. let's be honest here, Dennis. P certainly part of the, the enthusiasm and the attendance is about mm -hmm. people wanting to support Red Sea and what and what we're doing and and loving the the event I think I think mm -hmm. they like getting together it and seeing fun. seeing their friends and and neighbors and so that certainly those two things are a part of it but we would be um 
remiss? We, well, I was going to say we would not be humble if we <laughs> didn't also acknowledge. I think a lot of it has to do with our guest speaker. That's going to be Father Richard, Richard Simon. Simon. He is very excited to come There's to Texas. There's a lot of enthusiasm about him coming. He's on our airwaves every day from two to three, or every weekday, that is. Father Forever Simon know-it-all. says, yeah, it's, uh, Father Simon says is his show, and he's very excited to come talk to us about the big book on the coffee table, the Bible, and uh, Bloviate and all those things that he does, and he says he does on his radio show every day. Um, he he is what he is on the radio. He is that same in person. Um mm-hmm. A wonderful man. He's very much looking forward to coming to visit and touring our our studio here and the St. Mary's Catholic Center and to be able to come up to Central Texas following that. Um, and then he's going up to see his friend, Bishop Michael Olson, mm-hmm. uh, who is celebrating his ninth anniversary, I believe it is, of his ordination to the that's what Father Episcopacy. And Father uh, Simon told us. Yeah. And so he's going to go preach at his anniversary mass up in the Fort Worth diocese the day after so so father simon's giddy he's oh in a, he's gonna be in a really good mood to get yeah. here because he's it's an opportunity for him to see a good friend of his mm-hmm. and uh and he loves supporting catholic radio you know he he really uh has a heart for it he does and so uh if you want to reserve seats and let's say you're in the waco area and can't make it to the uh, benefit dinner on thursday i mean friday then come on Thursday. It's only an hour and a half down the road, folks. It's very that's a, a small commute for a lot of people these days. So, we still have a few seat, seats and tables available here. You can go to redcradio.org. That's our website. Click on Father Simon's image on the banner on the homepage, and uh, we'd love to see you there. It's going to fill up very quickly, though. We're um, completely full in Waco and uh, borderline completely full in. Uh, the Brazos Valley. Now, I, I am going to go out here and on a limb and make a little special appeal. We normally use our own personal vehicles to transport materials up to Waco <laughs> from Bryan College Station, but we are going to have to rent a U-Haul this year to transport anything. And if anyone is feeling desirous and wanting to just make a special donation to help us offset um, sure. that cost of the U-Haul, just to, just to further uh, make what we uh, are given at the at the benefit dinner that much more uh, mm-hmm. what we can put into our operations that would be so so appreciated um, but um, please pray for us that we can get through this little hiccup with um, transportation and um, God will provide operation you know logistics this little logistical hiccup no so it's it's going to be a great benefit dinner a lot of people are very excited to come I I know a friend that's coming from Oklahoma as a matter of fact wow yeah from Oklahoma City so I've not heard that he may be in town already but he's very excited um, he's he's a, a professor that I graduated uh, school with in uh, Texas A&M so Fantastic. looking forward to seeing you Bradley um, it's going to be a, a fun time. If I could get in here, um, that before we go to break, um, victory sports is rolling along. We have our championship weekend, uh, on Saturday mm-hmm. at St. Joseph Athletic, at the St. Joseph athletic complex for flag football. And we're going to have our championship games for volleyball at St. Anthony's. There's going to be a mass at 11 AM for victory sports families and anyone else that wants to come out and, mm-hmm. and see, to, to see the experience, uh, the the championship games are open to the public. They start at nine. Um, it's it's been just so 
fantastic. We're going to be updating you more about it at the benefit dinner. And we still have basketball registration uh, is still open uh, till till November 15th. There's some discount codes uh, floating around out there, but you can go to victoryyouthsports.org to register now. We still uh, we still need some, some signups, especially from uh, St. Anthony's and Santa Teresa, so that those those uh, parishes can have their own teams and we don't have to combine them. Uh, so please keep that in your prayers that uh, people, you know, go ahead and pull the trigger and uh, get involved. And uh, ha- we have, have a great basketball season. We'd love to see more uh, youth involved from St. Joseph and, and increase the registrations to uh, match up what's going, coming in the, the pike from uh, St. Thomas Aquinas. So we're we're looking forward to having a great basketball season. So and that's uh, boys and girls basketball grades one through six. VictoryYouthSports.org. VictoryYouthSports.org. Yeah. Lots of things going on these days. We have just a couple more minutes here, Dennis. What else do you have uh, for us? Anything? Any news? Gosh, I'm I'm just looking forward to making announcements to the to the folks of everything that's been going on over this past year and uh, some things that are in the hopper. Um Gosh, uh, I'm not going to give away a lot of those. You're just going to have to come to the benefit dinner. <laughs> Let's talk again about how people can uh, get tickets or tables for the benefit dinner here in, in uh, KEDC. Go to redcradio.org. That's red, the letter C, radio.org. Click on Father Simon's face as you uh, open that web page. You'll see the banner. It'll lead to the place where you can register now only in the Brazos Valley just a few more tables left. Literally, we're going to be closing the registration uh, probably early next week. So um, redcradio.org and uh, come for the food, the fellowship, and the fun. And again, a reminder on the other side of the break, which we're going to be going to in just about one minute, um, we're going to be talking to liturgical designer Michael Rea about the new church at St. Mary's and also um sacred arts and beauty in general. And also remember, Relevant Radio Pledge Drive is going on this week. And if you give to the Relevant Radio Pledge Drive, uh, some of that money comes directly back to Red Sea and helps us. 50% of it comes right back to us locally. So thank you for participating in that. And we'll see you on the other side. Thanks for being with us here on Red Sea Roundup. Welcome back to Red Sea Roundup. This is your second Wednesday of the month host, Thaddeus Romanski. So glad that you're in Red Sea Roundup with us. You're listening to us on 88.5 FM in the Brazos Valley, KYAR 98.3 FM in Central Texas, maybe KINF 107.9 FM in Palestine, wherever you're listening, over the air, online, on our app, wherever you're listening, 
We have a live guest this morning. You can call in at 85 Love Red Sea, 855 683 7332. Oh God, who from living and chosen stones prepare an eternal dwelling for your majesty, increase in your church the spirit of grace you have bestowed, so that by new growth your faithful people may build up the heavenly Jerusalem. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God forever and er God forever and ever. I was just reciting the collect from Mass today, which is the feast of the dedication of the Lateran Basilica, and I can't believe uh, the providential uh, turn of events that I'm talking to liturgical designer Michael Rea, friend of the program. He's been on several times. Um, this morning about the new church construction at St. Mary's and College Station and all things sacred arts in general. Michael, welcome back into Red Sea Roundup. Thank you, Thaddeus. It's great to be back with you and the listeners. Yeah, before we talk about um, the Basilica of St. John Lateran, briefly give folks your, um, your background or your credentials, however you want to attack that. Sure, sure. Um, so my background is in architecture. Uh, I studied architecture as my undergraduate course of studies and got a degree in architecture practiced for over 10 years. Um, about From that school that down time. the road, right? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for bringing that one up. <laughs> <laughs> I see I've, I've been adopted into the fold. Yes, you uh, have. Yes, you have. It's not an easy trust to earn, uh, my friend. <laughs> But uh, yes, I, I did do, do my undergraduate studies at the University of Texas at Austin. And um, during uh, the, the first half of my time uh, working as, as an architectural professional, I was managing projects and started doing a lot of work for the diocese. And it was during those years that I discerned this, um, this desire and really this calling from the Holy Spirit to dive more into the study of the church's sacred liturgy, uh, which Previously, I had thought was a really dry topic, and more and more, I really began to understand this uh, lens of sacramental theology uh, through which the church sees everything, including sacred art and architecture. Got a degree from the Liturgical Institute, which is in Chicago, uh, on the campus of uh, Mundelein Seminary, St. Mary of the Lake, and uh, nothing was the same after that. Uh, that kind of set into motion a sequence of events that led me to uh, start a focus uh, and a practice directly focused on uh, serving sacred uh, art and architecture, uh, serving the church through sacred art and architecture and clients that are specifically Catholic. So it's been a, a tremendous gift, uh, and it's been wonderful to work with uh, St. Mary's, the different groups, the, the staff, the building committee, um, the clergy, the donors, on and on, um, and just seeing the mystical body of Christ in action and seeing Christ uh, kind of tap different members of his church in different capacities to come together to build this image of that body, which is the church building itself. Yeah, and, and you're talking about those those living stones uh, that are mentioned in the collect. And let's That's go right. back to the to the collect and talk about this this feast day of the dedication of the Lateran Basilica. Tell us, um, g give us some insight on that, and maybe especially what is a basilica and and what is it not, and what's why is this this basilica so important um, to Catholicism. Sure. Great questions. Um, today we celebrate that feast of the uh, dedication of the Lateran Basilica. So um, any parish church, any cathedral uh, will celebrate annually its dedication as a feast, which is great. You can also celebrate uh, the feast of your patron, of course, 
Um, so whatever parish, if it's St. Paul or St. Mary or whatever, um, particularly with St. Mary's because we have many Marian feast days, yes. um, many people aren't necessarily aware that it's uh, St. Mary's Catholic Center and the church is under the patronage of the title of Mary as Our Lady of the Rosary. Mm-hmm. Um, so particularly that feast is tied with uh, with that community. Um, so uh, the dedication date is celebrated annually. Typically you have four or 12 dedication candles that are on the walls, usually attached to a cross. That cross um, typically tends to indicate a place where the bishop actually anoints the walls with oil, mm. uh, with the holy oil during the dedication. So that's something uh, for all the listeners who might find themselves at the dedication of St. Mary's, uh, July 29th, God willing, uh, we pray, um, or thereafter, you'll see 12 of these spots where the bishop will anoint uh, the walls or uh, columns of the church with oil in the shape of a cross. And then those candles are lit to signify that event uh, thereafter. Um, the, the building almost gets a little baptism, if you will. It's chrismated and it lights a candle um, like, like we do when we, really? uh, when we baptize new members of the church, same thing with the altar, Fascinating. Uh, we do the, the same thing with the altar. We anoint the oil with altar and we cover it with a white cloth, like a baptismal garment. So this, uh, anthropomorphism of kind of making, um, human like, uh, you know, um, things out of uh, buildings and furnishings and things like that is a, a pretty common tradition. Uh, and it comes to us from the ancients, even before where you would see carved columns in the shape of. Uh, people, particularly women, uh, mm-hmm. this idea of the feminine, the church being mother. And that kind of brings us to St. John Lateran, um, this idea that it is the mother church of all of Christendom. And the reason for that is that it's the Pope's cathedral. So a lot of people think St. Peter's is where, you know, that's the focal church of uh, Catholicism. Uh, certainly it's the one that we all think of. Mm-hmm. But St. John Lateran is actually the Pope's cathedral. It's the seat of the Bishop of Rome, mm-hmm. uh, who's the Pope, Pope Francis. Um, when it comes to the title of basilica, we have two different types of basilicas. And basically what basilica means is important church. Um, okay. Okay. Some of them are cathedrals. Some of them are not cathedrals. Um, in this particular case, St. John Lateran is both a cathedral and a basilica. And it's a special type of basilica. There are two categories, major and minor. Mm-hmm. There are four major basilicas and only four. And they're all in Rome. That would include St. John Lateran, which is the Pope's cathedral. Uh, the, the feast of the dedication of which we're celebrating today. That would include St. Peter's, a church that many people think of as the cathedral, but it's not. It's just a basilica and a shrine. Uh, St. Mary Major and St. Paul outside the walls. So I'm not a Rome expert. I've only been twice. It's been a while. Uh, mm-hmm. I'd love to go back in the near future. But uh, the, those are kind of the basics. Uh, we have many minor basilicas scattered around the world. Um, again, some of those are cathedral basilicas. Um, one of my personal favorite churches is the Cathedral Basilica of St. Louis in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, amazing Byzantine Romanesque church. I know we're going to talk a little bit about those terms, uh, mm-hmm. with some beautiful mosaics. Um, and, uh, and again, some of them are shrines. So you have the, uh, the shrines of apparitions and particular devotions mm-hmm. uh, as well. So okay. all just different types of churches. Now, um, maybe I missed this and you, and you said it, but what, what is the determining factor for for a church being a cathedral? Sure, great, great. So cathedral comes from the word cathedra, which okay. basically means not chair, catheter, folks, so. not catheter, but cathedra. <laughs> Different. That's right, cathedra. So like cathedral, take the l off the end, and it's cathedra. Um, so that means chair or seat. It literally is the chair of the bishop. So right. 
uh, we would call his his chair the cathedra, the actual chair that he sits in at mass. And so that is the place where it, it is his seat, the seat of the diocese, the mother church of the diocese. So it's kind of like our little St. John Lateran, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And our cathedral is uh, St. Mary's Cathedral in downtown Austin, mm-hmm. where I'm a parishioner, mm-hmm. and we see the cathedral there. And um, the rector, Father Daniel, does not sit there. Only Bishop sits there. Um, so it's a, a particular place that is a sign of his authority, where he is uh, standing in the place of the apostles and serving in persona Christi Capitis, mm-hmm. uh, in the person of Christ, the head of that body. And so this body imagery, again, bringing that up is so, so important to us. Um, if we have any subscribers to Magnificat out there or other resources that have the antiphons uh, for today for Mass. That's what um, I was looking at when I read the, <laughs> the collect was, was uh, Magnificat. Well, all of this is a beautiful accident in our minds, and it's intentional in the Lord. So come Holy Spirit. Um, the, the first antiphon option, I saw the holy city in New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Yes. So there's that feminine imagery, um, our mother, the church, the bride, um, awaiting the bridegroom. So that's such an important image for us, mm-hmm. as well as the next option that says, behold, God's dwelling with the human race. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with, uh, will be their God. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, both of those I use frequently in presentations that I get from Revelation, this imagery of church as bride, the church as holy city, Church as New Jerusalem, um, God's dwelling place on earth. These things are all uh, supposed to be in our minds and in our hearts when we think about a church building. So when we talk about the documents, the documents assume that we know all of that from the tradition. Okay, now I, I'm 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 leading a, a small group discussion on a, a book about the Second Vatican Council called "Reclaiming Vatican II." It came out about a year ago, and we were we just had our class this morning. One of our participants, who is a, a convert from um, the Christian Church tradition, Church of Christ, um, made a made a remark that um, when he was growing up, his youth minister would would make a point of the uh, the invisibility of the church or the church as the people is so important in their in their tradition, uh, and that the church building only has. Um, importance when the people are occupying it. And so they would play Frisbee in the sanctuary to, to kind of enforce that point. Okay. <laughs> right. Lest that, we get too attached. Right. Right. <laughs> and now that is, that is almost, um, that's irreverent. Hearing that is, is irreverent to a, to a Catholic mind. Um, but I understand why it's not in their mind. Um, why do Catholics, why does Catholicism place such stress on revering buildings, places, uh, dedicating them, blessing them, anointing them. What, what, what is that? What does that stem from? What is What about right. the incarnational nature of Catholicism makes that so? Well, that is, you just gave the answer away, which I really appreciate. It's all about the incarnation. It's about God's indwelling, um, his dwelling with the human race is coming into the world. So by that action, um, through the incarnation and the nativity, that mystery of the incarnation of God actually entering into his creation to dwell with us as our God, um, that changed everything. Uh, and really the entirety of sacramental theology um, hinges on that mystery. 
Um, one of the projects that we've been blessed to work on is a college seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota, uh, St. John Vianney College Seminary, and they're building a new chapel, uh, which unfortunately required um, demolishing their, their old chapel. Um, but this great opportunity that many have said, we, we really appreciate what was there before, but now we're ready to look forward. And one of the things that they're looking forward to is this transformation, this different understanding through sacramental theology through that lens. Um, the, the sanctuary, uh, the walls that face one another on either side of the altar will have two large murals. One features the event of the baptism of Christ, and one is the transfiguration. Mm. Those are really the bookends of sacramental theology because it shows us what God intends to do with us, with humanity, as well as all of the world, right? Um, it's not going to burn up and go away and then we grow wings and float around as spirits in heaven, right? Um, right? We have bodies, and so death is the painful parting of our soul or our spirit from our bodies. And we believe, we profess every Sunday, we share this creed with all Christianity that we believe in the resurrection of the body. So we believe that our bodies will be raised and glorified. And all of that um, is, is really the foundation of sacramental theology that because of God coming into the world through the incarnation, because he showed us a foreshadowing of his resurrection in his transfiguration, that he would give us divine life through the sacraments, through our relationship with him, through the church, um, and that that pipeline, that conduit, um, you know, through through which we're connected to him, like vines to the like branches to the vine, um, that source of divine life is really our source of renewal um, and transformation and transfiguration. So it anticipates in the liturgy what we do here and now, what will happen at the end of time. So the incarnation is really the starting place of all of that, where God says, not only did I create creation good. Yes, it's experiencing the effects of the fall. There's death, there's disease, there's famine, there's all of this disorder and chaos where there was original order. But he says, don't worry, I've got a plan. And one of my favorite antiphons is that in the fullness of time, God knew that he would restore all things in Christ. Mm. So God foresaw the fall of Adam and Eve. He foresaw everything that would come from that, all of the pain uh, and suffering that we continue to endure, will endure until he comes again. Mm -hmm. He knew all of that and in the fullness of time planned for his Savior to enter the world through the incarnation and to change creation forever, that God became human, God took on flesh. So the material order is different now. It's redeemed. It can be sacred. And when it's set apart, when it's made sacred and it's set apart like we do with holy things, we do this with the sacraments, we make material holy, uh, water, oil, bread, wine, right? It's different. It's set apart for God. It's set apart for a special purpose, and it's made holy. And as a result, um, we can experience transformation. So anything that's set apart and contains holiness can be transformed and transfigured by God. So that happens chiefly in the sacraments, but it happens by extension to all of us. We're transformed, maybe not physically. You don't see me radiating every time I receive Holy <laughs> Communion, most likely, maybe someday. Uh, but uh, at least for the here and now, we see this in the ordinary way that, that this grace transforms and transfigures our souls. So church buildings are meant to poetically symbolize that reality, that the church building is radiating. It's perfect. Um, everything that we do is meant to express the perfection and the order of God, because the building itself is the bride of Christ who has experienced perfection. The mm -hmm. bride of Christ has experienced the effects of the fall and sin, uh, the, 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 the marks of death. All of that has been removed, and the bride is adorned for her wedding day, waiting to walk down the aisle to the bridegroom Christ. So we want the church building to look perfect because that's what we anticipate uh, ourselves as the bride of Christ being someday, um, God willing, when we are married to him. 
Um, you said you you talked about things being set apart, and that triggered in me um, something from a passage from Sacrosanctum Concilium. That's the Constitution from the Second Vatican Council on the Divine Liturgy, on the Sacred Liturgy. Um, it's in 122, and it, it the Council Fathers wrote here, Holy Mother Church has therefore always been the friend of the fine arts and has ever sought their noble help with the special aim that all things set apart for use in divine worship should be truly worthy, becoming, and beautiful, signs and symbols of the supernatural world, and for this purpose she has trained artists. Um, it goes on to say that in 124, let bishops carefully remove from the house of God and from other sacred places those works of artists which are repugnant to faith, morals, and Christian piety, and which offend true religious sense, either by depraved forms or by lack of artistic worth, mediocrity, and pretense. Uh, I quote those two passages because I think, Michael, you and I could, and many of our listeners would probably uh, agree that there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of things that we see in terms of church architecture, church furnishings, sacred art that uh, to one eye look repugnant, uh, that they offend religious faith or they don't uh, they don't strike one as something that is a part of a place that's set apart for holy uh, endeavors. But to a different eye, they see, they don't see that. Um, so how how do we know what is truly worthy? What reverence looks like? What honor looks like? How do we know uh, what architecture that is offensive to religious faith or sacred art is offensive to religious faith uh, looks like? How does that get sorted out? Gosh, that's a big um, question. Really, I know. Really great questions. There's a lot to be said here. Um, I'll, I'll start by um, going back to the idea that we don't necessarily share all of the corollaries of incarnational theology with our Christian brothers and sisters. Um, many times, as we know in the Church, the, these things that divide us, Catholic and non-Catholic, or the different factions thereof, the different overlaps, you know, particular dom- denominations might share aspects of sacramental theology with us, where others might not. But typically, the starting point of departure— Oh, can I jump in before you really get going? And, I, sure. and I'm thinking about, I'm also thinking about inter, inter, intra-church, within the Catholic Church. I'm thinking of something like, Certainly. I'll just go ahead and say it, the the, the church at Collegeville, uh, Minnesota, that was built in the mid-1960s. I mean, I think that is a monstrosity, personally. Right. Right. Yeah, we'll definitely get there. Okay. So let's begin, let's begin with um, those who do not share uh, yes. the same profession. Um, the starting place is typically a truth. Um, so it would be something that we agree with, right? Like um, Jesus is God, right? Yes. Um, well, then you have the heresy that Jesus is only God, right? So it's the corollary mm-hmm. to the agreed upon statement that becomes problematic. Right. Um, this is a lot of times where we um, don't necessarily make heads or tails and, and um, are not necessarily productive in our engagement with um, non-Catholic Christians and particularly even Catholics within the church, right? We mm-hmm. Uh, we very easily draw dividing lines mm-hmm. and don't necessarily realize what we have in common and return to that starting place to affirm what we do share. Right. Um, I was teaching RCIA a few nights ago, actually at, at St. Mary's Cathedral, 
Um, great group. It's really wonderful to see the new life in the church. And we kind of started with uh, what do we what do we agree with, right? We were talking about the Paschal mystery, much like the incarnation, right? There's a core truth there that we agree with all other Christians on. Yet it's what comes after that, those corollaries, those uh, appendages to that theology that really begin to differentiate us. So, right. you know, the idea that um, Christ takes on flesh, um, we all agree with that. But what that means and what that changes in the world is where we begin to differ. Um, we do not believe that the building itself is to be worshipped, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we believe the building is a sign of something that is holy, which is the holy people of God. So um, I've heard a, a lot of priests even struggle articulating this in a way that really uh, enlightens the faithful to say, the church is not the building, the people are the building. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a rather Protestant mindset. It's mm-hmm. definitely not the mindset of the church because right. it's a half-truth at best. So we can definitely start with where we agree and say, the church is the people of God. Mm-hmm. However, and this is the huge corollary that's uh, been omitted largely in our, and continues to be omitted or maybe not articulated very well today um, in many places, is that the church leans upon the system of signs and symbols, the sacraments and the sacramentals, to instruct us uh, as to what we believe and how we worship, to inform how we worship, how we relate to God. So the church building is a sign and it's a, co- a composition of signs and symbols, the chief uh, collection of signs and symbols that point us to the reality of our identity, that we are to be the bride of Christ, that we are the heavenly city uh, that he has prepared in which he dwells, um, all of these things that we, that we just said. So um, we have to be careful with our half-truths, but it's not to say that we invalidate or disagree with that core truth. We can affirm that. Um, I think this is what happens with the documents with Sacrosanctum Concilium, and just a really quick backdrop to that. Um, if anyone is interested in this document, the Liturgy Guys podcast mm-hmm. with uh, D- Dr. Dennis McNamara, Chris Karstens, and Jesse Weiler. Excellent. Is a fantastic resource. And they take uh, this, uh, you and I, Thaddeus, could spend weeks on this at, like they did. Mm-hmm. Um, so if anybody's interested in that um, work that they already put in, walking through Sacrosanct and Concilium, they give you the backdrop. They give you what was happening up to this point, the other documents that were being referenced. Um, the philosophical, theological, anthropological meaning that's kind of um, latent, that's behind a lot of these words, where you and I could take them at face value without any training and say, beautiful, right. okay, well, I know what that means. Right. Beautiful just means I like it and it's attractive. <laughs> oh, no, no. <laughs> Beauty relies upon this tradition Aesthetics. that draws from Aristotle, from the ancients, from Augustine, from St. Thomas Aquinas. So uh, we have to be careful reading these documents for the first time as lay people without the proper context. And that's where I think the church has gotten into trouble with the best of possible intentions. That being said, your question, what is worthy? The tradition is really what guides this. Um, there's certain criticisms of Sacrosanctum Concilium. I think many people feel it's a beautiful document. There's very little to disagree with in terms of what's said. The bigger issue is what's left unsaid. Uh-huh. Um, so there are other documents that pick up some of that. Some of the musical documents go a lot further um, my own criticism would be that the art and architecture documents don't go nearly as far as the ones on sacred music. But even still, you look at the state of sacred music and it's far from, in, in many places, it's far from where the council and the documents thereafter have not only envisioned us to be, but have commanded us to be, right. uh, implored us to be. And we're still realizing now, decades later, what the council wanted. And that's really where we are with sacred art and architecture as well. We're struggling to answer this question, what is worthy? Um, 
many people um, tried to do that apart from the tradition and tried to break from the tradition to say, well, let's do something totally new. Um, you mentioned St. John's Abbey in Collegeville, Minnesota. That whole strain, um, in particular, that's a that's a great example of what's called heroic modernism. Mm-hmm. Um, it gets the monumentality, like it's an important building, right? You don't look at it and say, oh, this must be my you know, neighborhood, um, you know, branch post office or, or something <laughs> like that. It looks important, but does it look like what we just read in the Antiphon? Does it look like the Holy City in New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, like a bride adorned for her husband? Does it look like God's dwelling with the human? I think it looks it like look a spaceship. Like the bride of Christ transfigured, right? And people say, nope, it looks like a spaceship. Or uh, we have some famous cathedrals in California that are that are detracted um, in the eyes of many because of that. It looks like a washing machine agitator in San Francisco. <laughs> you know, so all of these things that you ask somebody, what does it look like? And if the first thing is not something in that grouping of, well, it's a church building, it's an important church building, it's beautiful, it looks like heaven on earth, it looks like, you know, all those things that the church tells us it's supposed to look like, then we know we're kind of off off the, 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 the beaten path. And that's where we can say this church, maybe it's not worthy because it's not doing what the church tells us the building should be doing, which is being a sign, a, a collection of signs and symbols of the supernatural order of this reality um, that we're seeing that the, that the church should be this uh, new Jerusalem, this heavenly city, this dwelling place of God on earth. So if that's what we believe about the liturgy, the building is supposed to tell us about the liturgy that's happening within. So if we get church buildings right, that can certainly help us do a better job with liturgy and vice versa. I think we're doing a better job with liturgies now, reclaiming much of what the council had for us and what came before, um, kind of reversing the the trend of throwing the baby out with the bathwater after Vatican II and being able to put together every all the gains that we've made through the work of the Holy Spirit in evangelization and discipleship with some of the great parts of the tradition before that we just chucked completely out the, the back door and saying, these are great tools. We've got to put all this together if we really want to be effective in the modern world. Well, I am, I'm excited about the potential for um, a renewal and a, and a continued beautification of the liturgy here locally at College Station at St. Mary's um, with this new church. And let's turn to that now. And again, I'm talking with Michael Rea, liturgical uh, designer. You can call in and speak to him if you have a question at 855-683-7332. But we're going to, I'm going to move on and ask you some questions specifically to to this church, um, aspects that people might want to know more about. Um, and I'm going to start with a question from one of my children who wanted to know, is an ambo, is the ambo supposed to be only on the right side if you're looking out at the congregation or can it be on either side? Can it be anywhere? And if it is supposed to be in a particular location, why is it that particular location? Great question. Um, Okay, so what you described as the priest perspective uh, from the priest's right, mm-hmm. for the rest of us, that would be our left. Correct. When we walk into the church. Correct. Um, most typically, the ambo is on the left side, um, and then you would see there typically would be a balance of the ambo with the priest's celebrant's chair, the presider's chair would be mm-hmm. on the right side. So mm-hmm. we have these elements, you know, altar typically in the middle, um, ambo typically left, chair usually to the right, tabernacle in the middle, or could talk about situations in which the tabernacle might be elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll just 
sum it up in one sentence. The idea is that if the tabernacle is not uh, in the sanctuary as the focus, um, kind of outside of the liturgies, when the altar itself would be the focus, it would be places like these major um, major and minor basilicas we talked about or cathedrals, yeah. where they're major sites of pilgrimage where um, reverent worship of the Blessed Sacrament in, in the tabernacle is not possible. And there's people walking through, talking, taking photographs. And that's really where we where the right. church envisions there being a separate reservation. Right. Now that said about the Ambo, again, going back to our previous discussion about the cathedra, the bishop's chair, the bishop's chair is typically on our left side if we're sitting in the pews. So if the Ambo is there in most other churches, mm-hmm. but the, the, the cathedral has the bishop's chair there, then the Ambo switches to the other side. Okay. So there's, there's convention there but there's no legislation. So that would be one of the places where we look to tradition. Um, and there's different um, different instructions on that. St. Charles Borromeo, we just celebrated his feast day. Um, he has this great book on the instructions for building churches. And uh, there is an English translation out there for anybody that wants to dig that up. And you can see why churches were built and designed the way that they were for 500 years, um, according to the work that Charles Borromeo did. Okay. Okay. Now, 500 years ago, um, that takes us back into um, uh, an older liturgical style uh, where that's the Renaissance period um, coming out of the medieval Gothic period. Before that, you had uh, Romanesque. I'm sure there's more discrete styles in between those, but these are some of the ones that maybe lay, yeah. the layman might know about. Um, certainly uh, Baroque after and Rococo styles after the the Renaissance period, and then you start to come into maybe neoclassicism. What what uh, what should a person understand the new church at St. Mary's? What kind of an architectural style does it fall into, and why was that was that chosen? Sure, uh, we can start kind of with the lowest common denominator because we've utilized, and ma- many of the new, newer church buildings today are sort of hybridized. Um, design styles, mm-hmm. um, what we would call um, a certain type of what's architecturally known as academic eclecticism. So it's where we study these styles and maybe draw out some of the elements we want to use and then try as skillfully as possible to um, combine them. And so this is this academic eclecticism was something that was being done a lot, particularly in Texas. So in U.S. architecture history, Texas is known as a hotbed, particularly in this um the very end of the Victorian era, the late 1800s, like 1895, um, just up until um, the war was ending to 1945 or so, that that's a um, golden era in church building. And that there was a lot of this um, eclectic kind of putting together of different styles um, that happened for many reasons. It happened um, because there were immigrants from different parts of, uh, of Europe in mm-hmm. Texas. You have the German and Czech and Italian and Polish and Irish uh, communities. You had um, those coming up from, from Mexico and from different parts of Latin America and Spain. So uh, you saw this um, kind of building of styles. So we looked to a common place where we could kind of have a framework, if you will, uh, a common chassis <laughs> to use a car image um, to kind of build something on top of that. And that, that vehicle to continue the car imagery was Romanesque. So kind of the lowest common denominator is that it's Romanesque. Okay. There's a ton of Romanesque architecture of significance around the state. So that just felt appropriate. It's stable. Um, it's used a lot around the Mediterranean. So we have this um, kind of common European um, heritage of that, 
but it also went to the Eastern Empire. So it wasn't just the Roman kind of Western side of the empire, but it was the Byzantine mm. uh, side of the Roman Empire as well was using this. And so that's where we get what we would call that, that tweak on Romanesque, which is kind of the Byzantine flavor. Mm. So there are elements of that, and you see that in some of the Lord of the Rings things, and now with the new Rings of Power, you know, a lot of that is Byzantine-flavored Romanesque architecture, which is really neat. Now, I, to, to my eye, um, and we have about a little less than 10 minutes, um, the dome feels very Byzantine-esque. It, it reminds me of, I think, yes. of the Hagia Sophia when I see it. Right. And even though many people know the Hagia Sophia now as uh, not a Christian church, it was built as a Christian church. So um, a lot of those who are only familiar with kind of the glories of Western Catholicism, uh, the great churches of um, uh, France and Spain and Germany, kind of those those countries and the the kingdoms from which they came uh, might not be familiar with this Byzantine flavor, but it it tends to have really massive proportions. So it just feels very noble, it feels Mm -hmm. durable, it feels strong. Um, and it has this um, kind of mysterious quality to it. And I think that's a little bit of the Eastern flavor that's brought in, um, maybe from the engagement that the Byzantine Empire had with the East and with the Orient. And you see a lot of that fusion happening. So Byzantine Romanesque um, would be kind of the, the first two elements. And then we're also um, acknowledging a lot of the Spanish um, uh, influence because a lot of the churches around Texas had the Spanish influence. So mm-hmm. you see kind of a Mediterranean uh, Romanesque with Byzantine and, and Spanish touches to it, um, particularly with the Spanish in the bell tower. That's where you see um, okay. some of those aspects where it's uh, sort of a two-part. There's a lighter portion on top of a taller brick uh, shaft below. Okay. Now, speaking of arch- or academic eclecticism, now to me, I see an, an eclectic uh, hybridization with the rose window. That's not something that you typically associate with Romanesque or with uh, Byzantine. Uh, that's something that I think of, uh, you know, Chartres Cathedral, uh, Notre Dame. That's that's Gothic. Yeah, so this was a great conversation we actually had with several folks, including with uh, some, some of the folks at the diocese who were asking about this and making sure we were being uh, thorough and um, authentic with the use of some of these elements. Um, we actually uh, worked with a colleague to write a book report on Rose Windows. Uh, can make that available for wow. anyone who's interested. But Sounds fascinating. Um, yeah, the Rose Window came out of the Romanesque tradition. So, okay. A, it is very much a part of that tradition. It's it granted the later part of that as uh, kind of the road is being paved towards the, the Gothic um, coming out of um, Saint-Denis um, and kind of that, that whole uh, movement and development of the Gothic as the technology for buildings was changing. And so the wheel window was kind of the predecessor of the rose window. It was more massive as Romanesque architecture was. And as the shift took place towards Gothic architecture, the openings expanded, the supports got thinner, um, and those pedals got larger. And then the stained glass, of course, was being developed and becoming more intricate and really beautiful, really glorious. So um, that concept of a round window in that location definitely has several precedents in the Romanesque style and era. I guess the second part of that answer would be that when we see the Romanesque revival that happens in the U.S., mm-hmm. um, where we did not have churches that are hundreds of years old yet, um, they were looking to kind of attach themselves to the tradition of the church in, in an authentic way. It's a living tradition. So we're constantly looking back to what's stable mm-hmm. and constantly looking to advance the bounds of the tradition to adapt to our, our modern needs. Mm-hmm. So um, you see a lot of 
Rose Windows Incorporated into Romanesque Revival, which is really what all of our American precedents are. Okay. So that is proper to call that a rose window, not a wheel window. It sure is. Yeah. So the wheel window would have been the true in the Romanesque era, you know, a thousand years ago, um, you know, eight, 800 or a thousand years ago. Okay. Um, the rose window was actually kind of reincorporated into Romanesque revival um, within the last 100, 150 years. Okay. Now I've been dying to know, how does the size of that rose window compare to the size of the rose window on, say, Notre Dame? Chart because that rose window that looks like a huge rose window to me. <laughs> yeah, I knowing the the magnitude, uh, the, the size of that building in in uh, Paris, I would venture to say that that one's quite a bit larger. But I don't have the numbers on hand. I'll have to text you that if you want to follow up. With I would love there. to know that if you were able to, to take that out. up somehow. Okay, sure. um, the. The cruciform the theology of the rose window, by the way, and and I'll I'll sum it up just by saying the rose window previews what happens in the rest of the building and and in the liturgy itself, which is Christ is at the center. Everything came from Him, Alpha, and everything is being drawn back towards Him, Omega. So you see Alpha and Omega on the facade below the rose window as well, with the inscription, "Behold, I make all things new," from Revelation. So that's kind of the theology of the rose window. And okay. when that is inserted at Saint Mary's in the next stage, you'll get to see all that. Okay. I think we, we have four minutes. Let's finish up. Uh, you have two minutes to talk about the decision to make this in a cruciform shape and that the sanctuary is located east. The, the, it's orient, the church is oriented towards the east, odd orientum. Talk about yes, that. Aggie East. Aggie East. Yes. <laughs> because the, the grid is not true north, south, east, west, but as, as close as we could get it right. uh, within working within the grid and maximizing the size of the building on the right. block. Um, but yes, that idea of a cruciform church comes from St. Charles Borromeo and from his instructions for church building. So um, the, the idea is really rooted in the two mysteries, the Paschal mystery and the mystical body of Christ. Those are actually the, the two topics I'm speaking on this fall for uh, RCIA at the cathedral. So um, first, the idea of the Paschal mystery, that Christ's passion, death, resurrection, and ascension are all contained within and made present in each of the sacraments, in each of the celebration of the sacraments. And when we participate in the sacraments, we do so as members of Christ's body. He is the head, and that's why he's made present and visible to us in the person of the, of the priest, in persona Christi Capitis. So the mm -hmm. priest is standing in for Christ the head so that we understand our place as members in his body. So the liturgy allows us to crawl onto the cross with Christ, to walk yes. up Calvary, to lay down on the cross with Christ, yes. um, with him as the head and us as the members, to be crucified with him, to be lifted up to the Father, to give the Father's greatest gift to us and his Son back to him uh, for our salvation, and to be glorified with him, to experience his resurrection. As St. Paul says, you know, you, are, you die in Christ, so you can rise in Christ. So all of the Paschal mystery, the mystical body of Christ, explains why churches are built in the shape of a cross. We ascend Calvary, we, we lay down on the cross with Christ when we sit down in that pew. And when the bread and wine are lifted up and transformed into his body and blood, we too are lifted up. And by the reception of him in, first, in Holy Communion, we experience the foretaste of the, the full effect of the removal of the fall and sin and everything else and the experience uh, foreshadowing of that uh, resurrection of the body and our transfiguration someday in heaven. Um, thank you so much for coming on, Michael. Uh, it's really been a delight to talk with I'm you honored. about 
um, this this wonderful project that that you've been a part of and and made possible help make possible for the faithful here in Bryan College Station. We're we're so thankful to Bishop Joe for um, giving his blessing and thumbs up for this project to go forward and all these men that have been out here sweating and toiling all these months. I'm watching them right now. Yeah. Um, and, uh, for their hard work, it's full and enthusiastic support, yes. I would say. And, uh, and gratitude, tremendous gratitude for all of those who have given even $5 to this project. This yes. made it possible for an amazing team of us to collaborate like the mystical body. So Indeed. amen. Indeed. All right. Well, Michael Rea, it's been, it's been a great time talking to you. We'll have you back on again soon. And uh, folks, you've been listening to Red Sea Roundup on Red Sea Catholic Radio. I'm your uh, second Wednesday of the month host, Thaddeus Romanski. Pam Marvin will be in next week with another exciting, interesting guest. And we urge you to keep listening and to continue to deepen your faith and to grow in your love of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks so much for listening today, folks. Um, God bless you. Since you wake up this dead man walking, shake off rumors and talking.